is Jacobin Radio, and I'm Susie Wiseman. Robin Blackburn joins us for an extended conversation on the left-wing Labour Party leader Jeremy Corbyn, his project and his prospects in Great Britain. Robin describes the economic conditions giving rise to the Corbyn phenomenon and discusses what structural changes the Corbyn government could implement. We're going to get his views on the prospects and proposals for an egalitarian shift in the UK with obvious lessons for the US and beyond. All this when we return in just a moment on Jacobin Radio. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. And Robin Blackburn joins us today for an extended conversation on Jeremy Corbyn's project and prospects in Britain. Robin has a new article in the May-June 2018 New Left Review called The Corbyn Project. And in it, Robin describes the economic conditions that give rise to the Corbyn phenomenon, the endless privatizations, bloated financial sector, delirious levels of debt. And he discusses what structural changes a Corbyn government could implement. We're going to get Robin's views on the prospects and proposals for an egalitarian shift in the UK with obvious lessons for the United States and beyond. And Robin Blackburn teaches at the Graduate Faculty of the New School University in New York and in the Sociology Department of the University of Essex, and that's where we're talking to him. He's a former editor of New Left Review, the author of many books, including Banking on Death or Investing in Life, The History and Future of Pensions, The Making of New World Slavery, and The Overthrow of Colonial Slavery, and Aid Shock, How Finance is Failing Us, also The American Crucible, many, many more. He's written on Cuba, and he famously interviewed John Lennon with Tarek Alley in 1971. So with all of that, Robin, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Thank you. Thanks. So let's just begin with the conditions that you lay out in your article in New Left Review that allowed for the rise of Corbyn. He seems to have reflected in large part the inability of the neoliberal leaderships to speak to the needs of an increasingly disillusioned electorate. And he's also an extraordinary phenomenon of a sharply leftward moving figure. So maybe you can just state the reasons that he has come this far in political and electoral strength by laying out these conditions. Yeah, it would be good to stress that he was regarded as more or less of a fringe figure, even an outsider in this political establishment. He'd been in Parliament more than a dozen years, but he'd voted against his own party 500 times, um, especially opposing that great raft of privatization and austerity that was the soul of Blairism back in the 90s and the early part of this century. So what really positioned Jeremy Corbyn to become the leader of a protest movement on a scale that we have simply not seen in British politics for a very long time was the really unresolved issues of the great crash and crisis, the fact that the crisis stubbornly wouldn't go away, the fact that the rich and the bankers were bailed out, but the price of the crisis was paid by the generality of the population. This didn't, as we know, it didn't produce an instant opposition. There were panicky reactions of one sort or another. But eventually, and especially with the failure to be able to confront and do something about that crisis, 
that's what created the conditions for Corbyn to become a standard bearer of popular revolt. It also is incredibly similar to the conditions that pertain here in the United States, and it's I guess in a way I should just say shocking for me because I lived in Britain in the 70s and how how much it's really changed. In any case, so Corbyn managed to take over the Labour Party leadership or to win the Labour Party leadership by bringing in a massive new membership. As I understand it, the Labour Party is now the largest political party in Europe. Can you talk a little bit about how that happened and what was the role in particular of organization like Momentum in making it happen? Basically, what we're talking about is an increase in Labour Party membership of 350,000 or more, so that it now has a total membership of maybe 500,000, probably more like 550 or 600,000. So really a, a broad increase in membership. And what happened was that all the political parties in Britain and the established leadership were shaken when an outsider demagogic ultra-right party, the UK Independence Party, or UKIP, Mm -hmm. when it won 27% of the vote in the Euro elections of 2014. That made it the largest party in that contest coming from Britain. So it actually beat Labour and Tory were both beaten by UKIP, and that sent a very urgent message to the party leadership concerned, and they came up with a so-called reform package. As far as Cameron, the Tory leader, was concerned, he came up with the um, idea of holding a referendum on British membership of the European Union, an in-out referendum, which we know famously when it was held in 2016, resulted in Brexit winning a 52 to 48% victory, uh, which was a big shock to the established Mm. political system. And so far as Labour was concerned, the reform package, one of the elements of it, was to make the Labour Party a bit less oligarchical than it had previously been, a bit less bureaucratic than it had previously been, by having a free vote for the leadership of the party with an open primary. Maybe this doesn't sound very revolutionary, to American listeners, but (laughs) it was very revolutionary in the context of uh, British politics. And while the left had canvassed for a long time to have a more democratic party structure and to have a, a directly elected leader, the actual decision was made by Edward Miliband, the previous leader following his defeat in the elections, he said the next leader should be voted on by every party member. Of course, when he did that, he absolutely had no idea, and nobody did, to be honest, including Jeremy Corbyn himself, that Jeremy Corbyn had a hope of winning that contest. But um, when he appeared as the solitary person who could really represent popular opinion and its radicalisation... And then it turned out he was actually a very good standard bearer. He also had been, and his most prominent political role before becoming leader of the Labour Party, was leading the anti-war movement against the war in Iraq. And he'd been organised the British bit of the 2003, the big international 
demonstration on that question. So he had a very good credentials in the peace movement and was very well known amongst peace activists. But this is really interesting because you're saying it was more sort of in the change of the rules of how the leader is elected than in, say, any organizational move made from below, especially I mentioned momentum. Maybe that comes after. Could you, like, address... I think momentum was only founded after he'd already at least begun to launch his campaign. Right. For our listeners, I think it would be really instructive to go over some of the antecedents to the Corbyn leadership in the Labour Party. Because I'm thinking that we should do that so we can understand what kind of a political break to the left from traditional social democracy he represents and also sort of the tradition that he comes from. Yeah, he had broad support in the trade unions, and that would be a fairly traditional aspect of uh, his victory. But what was really amazing was youth, young people, Responding, And, of course, they very directly borne the brunt of the austerity. And there are hundreds of thousands of them who've also become entangled with debt uh, as a result of exorbitant fees charged. It's something which is quite new for British students. Mm. I know you've had a system like this in the United States for quite a time. But in Britain, it was only introduced in the last 10 years. And it's been introduced at quite a high level. It means students, when they graduate, owe something like £50,000, so say $70,000 on graduation. And life is very pinched and short for them. Students and young people generally played a big part in canvassing Well, I was just going to ask, Robin, if you would say that the young millennials, the younger people who've come in, burdened by debt, moving to the left, not seeing the government speak at all to their interests, are they representing the bulk of the new labor membership? And how does that change what you described previously in your article about labor traditionally having its base that would be to the left, but unions control the apparatus and the labor rights are in parliament? Yes. I mean, it was so dramatic to have a leader chosen in this new way that it's rather taken people uh, their eye off the fact that um, the rest of the structure of the party at local, regional level doesn't embody, for example, one member, one vote. Very often you have block votes or you have deals done in um, corridors and and back rooms uh, with the trade unions playing often a key role, but not only, you know, including quite a conservative role. I mean, one of the issues they've been conservative on and which Corbyn has had difficulty getting real change is in support for military programs of the Trident nuclear submarine and the F-35 fighter. And these are things which have been targeted by the peace movement. And even the Scottish National Party and the Green Party oppose these nuclear weapons programs and Jeremy Corbyn has always very much opposed them but the Labour right in the apparatus and with some support from trade unions above all with where the membership which fear for the loss of jobs in the armaments manufacturing sector so that's been a a break on Corbyn just so far at any rate. 
I want to go through actually almost all of uh, those uh, things that you've just mentioned, but maybe what you've just said about, for example, the undemocratic organization of the party at regional and national levels, even though they have a new method of selecting the leadership, and that in your article in the prospects you talk about the parliamentary labor party who are mostly Blairites and openly and regularly attack him, and we've seen the press become incredibly complicit in this, in trying to smear Corbyn with anti-Semitism because he's been critical of Israel. And of course, that's basically the only thing we hear about here in the United States about Corbyn. Can you talk just a little bit about that aspect? There's been uh, now a, a total of three attempts, really, to remove him as leader, which has become increasingly difficult to do because he's been such a success. And above all, with such a success in last year's election, where he raised the vote for Labour from 30% of the total vote to 40% of the total vote. So that was a really massive increase in Labour's performance. But it's inspired successive attempts by the Labour right to try and discredit Corbyn in some way and try and bring him down, so far with very little success. But certainly the press move in and do their worst to try and create scandals and not to address Labour's policy proposals. But it's interesting that the massive population don't seem to respond very well to this. They don't find credible this um, discussion of anti-Semitism, and it's not regarded as a great popular issue. There has been an attempt to raise this issue But on the whole, Corbyn has managed to keep support for the issues that he himself strongly represents, which is the restoration of the public services and uh, deprivatization. Right, and that's really where I wanted you to go next, Robin Blackburn, and that is to talk about Corbyn's program, the manifesto, and all of the very specifics that you go through in your article and that uh, I'm sure our listeners would benefit from hearing, like egalitarianism, renationalization, etc. Actually, Labour has quite a radical program compared with anything it's had since 1945, which was the other great radical moment in Labour's development. Because Corbyn now, I mean, all the main public utilities were privatized, and he now wants them taken back into public ownership. So that's rail, energy a whole swathe of public services of one sort or another. Including which, the Royal Mail, which I hadn't realized was privatized. They're trying to do that here, but they succeeded in Britain? Yes, and we've had sort of two layers of privatization and financialization. I think we may be just a bit ahead of the United States <laughs> in that regard. It's not just privatization. It's also setting up new entities, vehicles, which borrow money from the city of London, and in return for receiving 30 years of guaranteed income from the taxpayers, Mm. from the state, they deliver public services. But they remain themselves private entities controlled by private shareholders. So that's a layer of financialization, which has turned out to be a very expensive way. And there's been a lot of criticism now from most of the think tanks, there's almost a consensus that private finance initiative, the so-called PFI, 
that it's been a failure. One of the half a dozen large corporations which have monopolized most of the 700 PFI contracts. And one of the biggest of them, Carillion, collapsed three months ago. And two or three others are in a very dodgy condition. And the difficulty is that they've paid very often over the odds to borrow. And they've promised to honor those debts and to pay them off over a period of 20 or 30 years. And it really has completely destroyed the economic coherence and sustainability of these privatized and financialized entities. But one of the things that you do in the article, Robin, is you talk about these radical measures that beyond, let's say, renationalization, but you talk about public utility banking and public capital. And that goes right to the point that you just described about the state of public capital in the era of neoliberal policies, low corporate taxes, low wages, overseas tax havens for hoarded capital. But now in this other thing that you've just described, the PFI, the private financial initiative, is this the way austerity has been implemented, but also enrich the private sector at the cost of the public sector? That's very much the case, yes. I think where Labour, Labour now says it will take in-house the uh, PFI projects, the ones that have been, that's a massive undertaking. It concerns about 8% of our GDP is produced by one or other of these PFI entities. So it's, it's really quite a big undertaking. There is very much an emphasis in Labour's programme and it's very popular Labour manifesto at the last election that's associated with the recovery in the Labour vote was a commitment to establish a national investment bank, an NIB, with funding of £250 billion of pounds over a period of 10 years. And so there's a strong emphasis on what one might call public entrepreneurialism, it's a little different from the old idea of nationalization in that it has this, it announced more initiative and more devolution and more local democratic participation in the management and the functioning and the aims of the newly socialized public institutions. In your article, you, you go through what the manifesto or, or Corbyn's program represents, which is certainly a break from the kind of traditional social democracy that we've seen. It's far more egalitarian. It's far more radical. But then you also talk about even more radical steps that are absolutely tangible that could take Corbyn's program in a process away from capitalism towards socialism. And you absolutely argue that these are feasible steps. And so one of them is turning banking into a public utility. Other areas are pension reform. Maybe you could just go over some of uh, those issues. Yeah, I think that there is uh, something new emerging here, which is some of these initiatives receive quite some support from a sort of center ground social policy experts. There's a new discourse, a new conversation on public utility banking, for example. And in the piece, I try and give some examples of that. But I'm able to quote the um, Financial Times. There's a sort of dissident faction of 
establishment opinion, which thinks the banks should no longer be allowed or encouraged, indeed, as they are, to mint money, to create money, and to become, in fact, the chief money-creating institutions in the um, national economy. And instead for this function to be more reserved for public financial entities. Now, the exact details of this are still a bit unclear, but it's a very interesting sort of neo-Keynesianism, perhaps, although it's going beyond anything Keynes himself ever recommended. It involves writers like Anne Pettifer and Mariana Mazzucato mm-hmm. and Mary Mella. So there's a quite significant current of opinion that is looking for a, a less centralist model of public enterprise and of nationalization, and that is looking at ways to um, combat tax evasion and to tax the new tech giants. So in the article, I discuss a number of different proposals that have been made there, including, for example, Diane Coyle, another of these theorists, who says that we need to have, in the digital field, we need to have a publicly owned entity there as being a way to introduce an element of competition. So a publicly funded entity would uh, enter the fray but also looking at new forms of taxation, because obviously the big tech giants, there's lots of evidence now that they've greatly boosted the evasion of of tax by British business and American business. So these are new things that were never really focused on and known about by in Labour Party policy, but now the Corbyn, the teams of economists, working for John McDonnell, the shadow chancellor, and for Jeremy Corbyn, are looking at ways to confront the tech giants, to close the gap and the dwindling, the shrinking of the tax base. Right, and this is something, you know, that does pertain to the United States as well, given that, let's say, just to bring it here, that they've passed this gigantic tax break for the wealthy. And unlike when Bush did it, this one doesn't sunset after 10 years, and it literally will take a new Congress to overturn it and come up with something else. But you also raise in what you just said, Robin Blackburn, by uh, quoting some of these newer voices who have very interesting ideas, that even so, with low wages and overseas tax havens, there's, there could still be a problem of public capital, even though I think you pretty well uh, go through it in the article. But you also alluded earlier to the gigantic growth of debt, and not just student debt, but all kinds of debt in uh, the UK. And you bring up... An yeah, that's like, uh, it's around uh, close to five times GDP. So it's households. Uh, but it's also corporations and the financial sector and, of course, the local and national government. But with the stubborn indebtedness of large numbers of citizens, that's really the base of this. And one of the ideas that's been floating around is for debt forgiveness on a rather dramatic scale. There is a feeling in the establishment opinion as well as on the left and in the Corbyn, the ranks of 
Corbyn that the international order is in a very disturbed, shaky condition. Examples would include uh, the problems of the Turkish lira at the present time, Mm. the trade wars that Trump is pursuing, all of the considerable indebtedness of the Italian economy and, in fact, of most sections of European capital. So one of the ideas has been for a jubilee that as a way of heading off some of these crises, the British government would be in a good position to come up with a scheme whereby a significant sum would be simply created by the central government and would be given to every citizen, not discriminating only in favour of the indebted, Mm. but with the aim of wiping out a large chunk of that popular indebtedness. So the sum sometimes mentioned is around £40,000, which would be a really major contribution to most households, and it would enable students to clear quite a lot of that graduation debt that they've uh, taken on. And um, the whole idea would be not to aim the program uh, and orient it to towards giving resources, giving cash to only to the indebted, but also to give some of that cash to every citizen, even the moderately rich, in order to increase the credibility of the measure. So you wouldn't be sort of just subsidizing the improvident, as it were, or the spendthrift. Every citizen would receive equal treatment. They would have to use the social dividend they received to pay off debt if they'd got it. But once they'd done that, they could spend the money any way they like. And those with no debt at all also would be able to use the full amount. So um, this is a sort of jubilee scenario. Anne Pettifer, who has written about the indebtedness of the South, and she organized a quite successful campaign to get forgiveness of the debt of poor countries. So this would be something a little like that. Though, as I say, the money concerned, the dividend, would be paid out to every citizen, whether indebted or not. But with a proviso, they should use it, if possible, to get rid of the debt. And one of the things that I really enjoyed in the article is you also said that even Milton Friedman had some notion of doing this back in 1968 when he talked about dropping money from helicopters. (laughs) But presumably toward the same thing, he was giving people cash so that they could raise demand. Is that right? That's absolutely it's to raise demand. So it's a point where Friedman and Keynes would at least meet. Actually... um, I was saying there's this new kind that thinks that banks shouldn't be in charge of the process of creating money, which they do on a massive scale, and the population isn't really aware of it. Although I think a lot of the anger of Tea Party or of Corbyn in Britain comes from popular anger that the banks and the rich bore practically no cost of the crisis. All of this was taken by taxpayers more generally. Well, Robin, let's move to Corbyn's electoral prospects. And and in this way, I think the fight that he has been waging within the Labour Party with the more Blairite 
Parliamentary Labor Party, and I think you say in the article that given the chance they would return to the neoliberal policies in a heartbeat, including, you know, privatization and austerity. But they are not in the majority in the party, and Corbyn has been incredibly successful so far in increasing, I guess, the uh, the support for his leadership. And then on the other hand, you've got the electoral situation. I was going to say that this is slightly similar to the to the fight that Bernie Sanders faces in the United States against the you know, the leadership of the Democratic Party, which is neoliberal and hates it, the left. But also you've got the situation in Britain where Theresa May is technically in power until 2020, even though, you know, she's had a difficult time with uh, Brexit and her support has waned. So I really want to ask you, what could bring about a general election before 2020? And what do you think Corbyn's chances would be in such an election? Well, one would have to say it's going to be a tough proposition for Corbyn because he did so well last time ranking up 40% of the vote with the Conservatives on about 43 or 44%. That there isn't much there to squeeze except the Conservative Party itself. Now, there is a certain reason why that Conservative vote could shrink. I don't think it'll go to Corbyn. But there is a lot of dissatisfaction with Brexit from all sides. Mm. Uh, basically, the government has revealed itself as being ineffective and incompetent in negotiating Britain's exit from the European Union. They've not been able to secure what are broadly seen as good terms by most of the population. And it's taken a long time, and uh, there's no definite results uh, to show for something that's dragged on for two years. There's uncertainty now in the business community and some shines of economic feebleness entering the picture. So um, that all could lead to Conservatives staying at home or voting. I mean, it looked as if UKIP had been completely wiped out in that last election. It was, it was down to 1.8% of the vote. But it is possible that some of the former Conservative supporters will feel that they've been betrayed and they'll go to UKIP, back to UKIP again. This is not by any means an entirely comfortable line of thought uh, because UKIP has always been an unpleasant and racist party, but it's actually become far more toxic. Its more presentable leaders have disappeared or retired from the field. And um, far-right people have taken over. So uh, that could be part of a a polarization of opinion that would result from from that election, this next election. But But as I think you did start off by saying, by law, we now have fixed parliaments. So Mm. it's not so difficult, so easy to change that. You have to have all the political parties more or less agreeing, which I think is not going to happen. So it does seem quite likely that the present government will limp along. I mean, certainly until the negotiations with Europe have been concluded. Uh, Then they might themselves decide on the Conservatives on going to the country in an election. And they just possibly might be able to get Labour agreement for that, because Labour would like to... It's calling for an election, so... Let me just ask one question about that, because the Tories are also weak 
and could only form a government by allying with a very far right wing party in Ireland. Are you saying in a way that the Tories could increase their support in alliance with UKIP? Is that some sort of possibility? Is that what you're saying? No, no. What I'm saying is that Tories would see their support, which has been at about 43 percent. They'd see it shrink. Oh, okay. Uh, it could shrink down to sort of, say, 38 or 37 percent. Labour can win the next election with the Conservatives doing badly. If it keeps all its own votes, it's 40 percent of the votes. Still probably would need to do a deal with the Scottish Nationalists, the SNP. Right. Right. That's the other question. I still want to ask you a couple of more questions. This is incredibly interesting, Robin Blackburn. But so given what you've just said and how close Corbyn you know, literally came uh, to winning the last election, and as we said, May only prevailed, Theresa May prevailed in coalition with a far-right party, and you said their support has shrunk. And can Corbyn actually win the Labour Party to his program, which is in essence, you know, attacks the very logic of neoliberalism? And could, given that the parliamentary MPs are so heavily Blairite or right-wing, in other words, would they be in, in a position to sort of pull off some kind of administrative in coup internally to prevent Corbyn from governing, given his popular base and the fact that people are disillusioned with the Tories? Yeah, I think it's like the previous coups they've mounted, most of which have been comical and self-destructive, too. But they will continue to try. The Blairites aren't actually a majority. They're about 60, more or less, out of 230. So um, really there's about 40, perhaps, who are Corbynite MPs. And then in the middle, there's 200 or so who would could be blown this way or that. And do you think that this is really sort of the end? Do you think Corbyn can win, rather that the Labour Party could win the next election under Corbyn's leadership? And given that, this is probably asking you to do too much crystal ball gazing. I think yeah. in a rather extraordinary position that the whole of this is in the shadow of Brexit. Mm. And it is rather extraordinary for a country, the European Union, is the first time one of its members have tried to break free, and it's not clear whether it can be done or uh, what cost to all involved. But it's like an existential problem that is facing all British parties and British voters. And there's been an extraordinary national conversation now for more than two years devoted to the topic. And there's this growing popular anger at the government for its ineffectiveness. And there's talk of new parties being formed on the left and new parties being formed on the right. There could be a more or less pro-Israeli Labour Party. But I think that would turn out to be a very small, ineffective group. The Conservatives, there's a really deep gulf there between the Brexiteers, the ones who want to leave the European Union, and those who want to remain within it. And they both have credible leaders available to them. So it's quite possible that someone like Boris Johnson, for example, who's a rabid uh, new alt-right spokesman and demagogue, he could shake things up. It would be extraordinary to see a battle between the Conservative Party led by him and the Labour Party led by Jeremy Corbyn. But 
that's as far as my crystal ball takes me at the moment. Well, let's do it this way, Robin Blackburn. When that happens, I'm going to invite you back, and then we can then address even the next question after that is, should Corbyn win? How would he avoid all the pitfalls? Or let's say what's happened to other left-wing social democratic governments that essentially cave in power. But I don't want to really go there, and I want to thank you so much today for all of this to help us understand here on this side of the uh, Atlantic the politics and prospects and proposals of the Corbin leadership. And I've been speaking with Robin Blackburn. He teaches at the graduate faculty of the New School University in New York, but also in the sociology department at the University of Essex, and we're talking to him there. He is the former editor of New Left Review, and we've been talking about an article that's in the current New Left Review number 111 for May-June on the Corbin Project. Robin, thanks so much for staying up late and talking to us here in California. Thank you, Susie. My pleasure. Thank you so much. And I'm Susie Wiseman, and this is Jacobin Radio. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine, and special thanks to Robert Brenner, and thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. 